FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. So we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. It is Friday, April 9th, and as always, I'm very happy to have you all with us. We're going to look at COVID-19, the status of where we stand in Georgia right now, a number of cases, how the vaccines are being rolled out, how uh, many shots are getting to arms of Georgians, and um, talk about a lot of other aspects of the virus with a truly distinguished uh, panel of experts uh, today. Before I introduce them, quick note about yesterday. Um, yesterday, I, I heard from an awful lot of you uh, about our conversation with uh, Color of Change chairwoman Heather McGee, whose new book, Some of Us, is a remarkable look uh, from a very fresh perspective on dealing with racism in the United States. Uh, Heather McGee contends that uh, while blacks suffer the most, of course, from racism, white people, in terms of the policies they've pursued, have been punished too. And one of the reasons I wanted to mention it briefly is that I heard from a number of you who experienced exactly what became the central thesis of her book. You grew up in towns in Georgia where the public swimming pools were paved over where cement was poured into the pools to stop black people from using them, which, of course, also denied the white community uh, an opportunity to have a pool to swim in. And I'm, I have to say, I'm glad I heard from you, but of course I'm not glad of what, for what you experienced, but I, I'm grateful that you sent me your uh, comments about uh, what you went through. Uh, as Heather McGee wrote about it. Uh, you can still listen to that show on our podcast or go to uh, gpb.org slash PR. It's a fascinating conversation. All right, let's get right to our show today. I'm really thrilled that um, we have with us uh, today Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Montgomery Rice, you grew up in Macon, I believe, you went to Georgia Tech for undergraduate, I think got a degree in chemistry. You went on, you got your MD from Harvard. You um, have a specialty in obstetrics and gynecology. And you've been at Morehouse in two roles over what, the last decade, I think, is that? Do I have that pretty correct? Only nine years. Let's not add okay. six years yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, nine years. I, I am. And, and as you were talking about of course, I'm from Macon. And as you're yeah. talking about the swimming pools, I, rem I mean, I grew up in the 60s there. And I remember there was only one or two pools that we could go to. Now, we didn't yeah. know that that was necessarily bad, but uh, that was challenging. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I heard actually from yesterday from a Vietnam War veteran who came back to Macon, his hometown, and found they had closed the YMCA uh, to oh all people goodness. because they didn't want to integrate it. So, so Macon yeah. had some of the issues we talked about yesterday. Um, I'm also very happy to welcome back to the show Professor Joshua White. He's the Patent Distinguished Professor of Biological Science at Georgia Tech. Um, uh, Professor, you were with us uh, with some regularity back when the virus really had taken hold last year, and I'm awfully glad to have you back. You developed last year a tool which I think you were, were, were very surprised took off in an exponential way, a COVID-19 risk assessment planning tool working with data that you and your team at Georgia Tech had put together and that tool is still in use. I looked at it this morning. Yes? That's right. It continues to go. It automatically updates, so that gives us some free time in yeah, other parts of the good. day. But, again, delighted to be back here. And, unfortunately, the tool is still relevant. We continue to hope that one of the benefits of this and other sort of awareness campaigns is that we'll put ourselves out of business, in part because vaccines will increase uh, population immunity and people will, will take the necessary precautions. But, but you're right that these things aren't, you know, light switches. And, and we're continuing to monitor and trying to inform the community about ongoing risk, even as people get vaccinated. 
What the tool does is drill down into individual communities to give people information about the size of a gathering that it is safe for them to have based on the spread of the virus or the uh, the number of cases of virus at any given time is the right way to say that, yes? That's right. Yeah. The risk associated with going to different events of different sizes, given your county-level risk. So it really drills down to county level. And we found that that has really helped people understand their local community-level risk. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we're going to use that to talk about uh, the governor's lifting restrictions later in the show. But I'd really love to start. Um, and oh, I'm sorry, Patricia Murphy. You're with us, of course. It's Friday, and Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist for the AJC, uh, joins us. Uh, I'm sorry, Patricia. It's always a pleasure to have you back on the show. As always, I want to give you an opportunity to tell people what they can read that you've written for the Sunday paper. Oh, thank you, Bill. I am armed with two liberal arts degrees for this conversation, so I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) But I wrote this week about uh, Truest Stadium, that absolutely gorgeous stadium in Cobb County that will be empty for the All-Star Game. Um, And really the the incredible amount of work and taxpayer money that went into creating that stadium into creating Georgia as a very pro-business environment um, and the need to have a really predictable, sound, um, well-led leadership uh, environment and political environment here in the state in order to really um, make the most use of what we've done so far. We really need to have a political environment that is also uh, predictable and um, not what we've seen recently, and, and low controversy um, and high return for taxpayers. And so, uh, once you get, you know, you get the parks, but you have to to really have a well led community to 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 keep the business. And that's what I wrote about. Um, Sam, why don't we post a link to that column online so people uh, can uh, read it? Is it is it up already, Patricia? It should be up by noon. Okay, we'll post it later today. Um, Dr. Montgomery Rice, let's dig into our conversation. Um, Morehouse School of Medicine has really been at the forefront ever since the middle, I would say, if not earlier last year, of working on uh, uh, pandemic issues, particularly related to uh, minority uh, communities, to uh, uh, not just African-American and, and Hispanic minority communities, but ethnic minorities, rural uh, communities. You have done an enormous amount of work in that area. Just tell us a little bit about how Morehouse is engaged. So, um, Bill, what really happened at the beginning, we, in the middle of March, even though we had been reading the reports from the CDC in January, February, it really hit home how serious things were about that second week in March. And luckily we had already planned for, you know, virtual business continuity. And so we were able to flip on a dime, the students, you know, uh, taking classes, et cetera, online and uh, shutting down the campus. But we knew that we couldn't do that for long. So we had an internal process of how would we return to work based on the CDC guidelines, based on data, and we knew that testing needed to be involved. Well, we also recognized that for our community, this was a big issue uh, of whether or not they could get access to testing. And then externally, we started getting calls immediately from the NIH and and the others saying, okay, we're going to need you all to be a part of vaccine trials because we know that it's gonna be very difficult for us to enroll people in vaccine trials if we don't have trusted entities. And we knew that, and we had been doing a lot of HIV work. So we, like others, flipped our HIV work and focus onto COVID-19 and became very involved with trying to understand how to get the right messages out there. So first of all, understanding what we need to do from a safety perspective, you know, washing your hands, watching your distance, and, and wearing a mask, of course, and then thinking about how do you integrate testing and making PPE available, but then how do we start to be a part of therapeutics and vaccines? So we partnered initially and still do with the National Medical Association, the four historically black medical schools, 
the National Urban League, and Black Coalition Against COVID and BlackDoctors.org. And we started having town hall meetings. We've had 15 of them now, national in scope, 20 to 30,000 people. And we started hitting it head on about all of the distrust and mistrust in the Black community, in the Latinx community with the health system recognizing that health disparities were there, recognizing that people were not, because you were black or, or black or Latinx, that that is not why you were getting the virus, but saying that, okay, it's because you can't social distance, because of your socioeconomic status, et cetera. So dispelling myths so that we could build trust and not actually disregarding people's concerns, but addressing them head on and saying, when we didn't know that we didn't know, but we still needed you to participate. So the most important thing we did was build trust. And I can get more specific about all the tactical things we did, but we used science to guide our conversations and we built trust based on our relationship with the community. Uh, just to follow up on that and then bring everybody else into the conversation, one of the major efforts you made in terms of what you've just described is uh, trying to build trust around the issue of African Americans being vaccinated. We know that at the beginning, um, the uh, uh, vaccination uh, effort, there were there were feelings that, that African Americans were going to be skeptical, were not going to want to be vaccinated, and some polling showed that they were disproportionately uh, nervous about the vaccine. But you've been working uh, very diligently on building faith in the vaccine. And the most recent Marist poll that I've seen uh, has mm -hmm. a pretty remarkable result. It shows that if you look at all adults, and I know numbers on the radio are a pain, but I'll try them anyway. Among all adults, 45% of people respond to the Marist poll by saying, if a vaccine is made available or if you have a vaccine, 45% say yes, they will take it. Interestingly, 48% of black people in that poll, uh, a little higher percentage. So the effort to vaccinate in the black community has been successful, thank goodness, yes? Yes, so it's been uh, highly successful, but there are still pockets that we have concerns, but highly successful with messaging. And, and as I shared with our uh, Commissioner Toomey and others, that the messenger matters. So in, like at Morehouse School of Medicine, we opened up the campus in January, February for vaccination Saturdays. And we did drive-through vaccinations, drive-through vaccinations, and that made a big difference. So, and also several of us took our vaccines uh, online. You know, we had the civil rights leaders take theirs online. So we built that trust. And it was an effort that has paid off because in our sites, we have over 78% of the people who are getting vaccinated are African-American or Hispanic. Um, Bill, Bill, one of my favorite columns that I've done so far was going to Cuthbert, Georgia, a very small town in southwest Georgia, to watch a group of volunteers reach out to older black Georgians in this very, very rural part of the country. Um, and... Uh, uh, knock on their door, ask them would they like to be vaccinated, can we help you sign up? And what I found by going with these volunteers was that there, for the, the homes that we visited, were, there was very little vaccine hesitancy. Everybody who answered the door said, absolutely, sign me up. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do it. And the reality is that not only do they not have a computer, um, because these are lower income homes, they don't even have cell phone service. And so they you can't Google, where do I get my vaccine? They didn't know until somebody physically knocked on their door and they were eager to get it because they knew about COVID and they didn't want to get COVID. They knew it was dangerous. Um, and so Dr. Montgomery Rice, my question to you is for lower income, hard to reach people, um, especially in the black community, what's the best way to get to them um, so that they can get those vaccines when they really do want them? We have to meet them where they are. So we have been working on our strategy and we've had vaccination Saturdays. The greatest thing that happened then was that you would see um, 
the granddaughters or the grandsons bring in grandmama or granddaddy, right? But we couldn't vaccinate them then because they didn't meet the age criteria. So the most important thing is that we release some of the restrictions. Now we have mobile research vans that are going out into the community and meeting people where they are. And Patricia, we're going to do exactly what you said. We're going to go door to door. We're doing a big event at West End where we're going to set up our mobile research vans and, and stations, pop-up vaccinations, so people can walk up and get their vaccinations. The registration process, you all, has been too cumbersome. I uh, chaired the COVID-19 <laughs> Health Equity Council for uh, the Department of uh, Health, and I have been working along with Dr. Toomey to remove the barriers to registration, such that when you see someone and they are want a vaccine, that we can give them a vaccine right then. So removing the registration barriers and then taking the vaccine to the people in their community, just like you saw uh, in, in, in the rural counties of Georgia. Professor Weitz, we, we have enough talk about partisan politics on this show that I don't want to dig, d- delve too deeply into it right now. But I do want to ask you a question based on the Marist poll. Um, it is interesting that um, Marist finds that it is Republican men and those who supported Donald Trump during his presidency who now are the largest group uh, to say they don't want to have anything to do with the vaccine. If 49% of Republican men don't get vaccinated um, and refuse to do it, I don't know how you reach them in a way that Valerie Montgomery Rice's people at Warhouse were able to. The question really is a bigger one, which is what does this mean for developing real herd immunity and protecting the country? So I'll, I'll try to take that from the public health perspective. It's obviously deeply problematic. I mean, we can get into the other facets, but it's deeply problematic when that level of hesitancy is associated with a particular group, because that obviously is going to mean that not only do those individuals not get the benefits of protection, but then that's going to be yet another chain and a link that the virus can continue to transmit and ultimately affect someone who may be vulnerable to and more likely to get a severe outcome of infection. And if we look at outcomes, because I think these strategies that Dr. Montgomery Rice already laid out are terrific, the reality is that we're fighting against, uh, let's say, pre-existing disparities that then we have to overcome to try to make sure that if someone is no longer hesitant because of all this great communication, that they then can have Mm -hmm. access, right? So if you have someone, I'm ready, but I can't get it, well, then we haven't really solved the problem. And if we look at the outcome perspective, in Georgia, there are still outcome disparities. The, essentially, the percentage, and I'm, well, you brought me in because I didn't hope it's Bristol, but I'm still going to go there a little bit with numbers. If you look at <laughs> African-American versus white outcomes in terms of pop, percentage of population with at least one dose, there's a lag indicator. In other words, blacks have about one in five versus white individuals closer to one in three. And so that disparity means that we're still not doing good enough. If we look at Hispanic versus non-Hispanic, Hispanic individuals have about half the rate of getting that first dose. So there are clearly access point issues. And this also relates to community levels of, of protection, because clearly there are counties with different levels of Republican versus Democrats, and they, that means that we might have clusters of cases in areas that essentially the state as a whole in some places may be moving forward, but other portions of the state uh, are not moving forward as much. So. This is an issue that's got to be overcome, and the messenger matters. I may, I may not be the mess, best messenger for certain parts of the community, but they're going to have to find appropriate messengers for all sectors of Georgia because we're all linked together. We can't get population-level immunity and protection with only sectors of the population being vaccinated. Now, I just one last thing there. Yeah, yeah just one last thing is also the age part has got to shift. I want to bring that up also which is there was a very big focus early on on older individuals. But younger individuals, and this is something you know, at Georgia Tech that we're acutely aware of, can have asymptomatic infections and then pass on to an older individual. And the reality mm-hmm. is that with some of the spread of variants, those in the 50s to 60 range, I mean, clearly at any age you could potentially get a severe infection, but those 55 to 64, only about half of Georgians in that age have gotten at least one dose. 
And that's a risky age and exposure range, right? And it's not just grandparents now. Some can be parents. We've got to work harder in that age range. Dr. Montgomery Rice, to pick up on what Professor White said, um, Mm -hmm. I've mentioned on the show several times that for Metro Atlanta, a step in the right direction, I thought, in terms of access was when DeKalb County uh, moved its one of its primary, they had two vaccine centers. One was at a parking lot at a, a brand smart electronics store up in 285. You had to have a car to get there. There was no other way to get mm-hmm. vaccinated. And they moved it to a MARTA station, which did offer the opportunity for people who needed public transportation to get there. And now the feds, of course, have opened a, an enormous mass vaccine site at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which at least for Metro Atlanta offers a really good place for people who need public transit. Yes? Yes. So all of those are good. So they are ands. And we have to do the smaller venues also because I know that some people are never going to go to the Martyr Station or go to the Mercedes-Benz. So we're going to be in our research vans, and this starts next week. Um, we will start in our research vans going to community centers, going to places where people have trusted relationships, having those individuals partner with us. And, Bill, if I may add to something that uh, Joseph said, and I think this is really important. I was reading this in one of the articles where one of the white males who would fit the description in the uh, outline of who may be resistant to getting the vaccine for whatever reason. He said something I think is very critical. He says he wants to be educated and not coerced. That's no different than what the Blacks and Latinx people are saying. They want to be educated and not coerced. So some of the same strategies and tactics that we have used to engage with the African-American and the Latinx community, we need to be diligent and patient with the others in those communities that are saying that they're resistant. We need to listen without judgment, meet them where they are, and provide the signs to them to educate and not coerce. Boy, Patricia, what what, uh, uh, Dr. Montgomery Rice just said seems to me so on point. You know, given how much you spend your time in the world of politics, like I do, just how bitter the divide between Republicans and Democrats is right now. And if we address people who are resisting the, the vaccination as our political enemies because they're Republicans and Trump supporters, no, we're not going to get anywhere in encouraging no people to get vaccinated. It's a fascinating thought, Patricia. So I've given it a lot of thought. It is an incre- it's both a blessing and a curse to have a political leadership overlay this medical crisis. Um, it's a curse for obvious reasons because it has in many ways been a, lo- a source of serious and dangerous misinformation um, from some political leaders. Um, however, the blessing of having politicians in charge of Um, a crisis like this, especially vaccinations, is that if politicians know how to do one thing, it's how to convince a group of people that something is true and get those people to act on it. And that is what voting is. If you look at the nine-week campaign between the general election and the runoff election, we literally spent $800 million convincing Mm. 7 million Georgians to do one thing. And they had people go door to door. There was social media. There was broadcast media. There were 15 Mm -hmm. or 20 different messages based on what subset of the population group you fell into. And then on social media, they could even micro-target it to what have you clicked on before? What do you Google? What are you afraid of? What do you like? So this is a group of people who know how to convince Georgians and Americans writ large to take a single action. And if they could overlay that motivation and those techniques onto COVID vaccinations, we could probably solve the problem in nine weeks. <laughs> so, so that's the blessing um, and that's the potential, I think. I apologize for uh, stepping on your final words there, Patricia. Um, Professor Weitz, just to take a longer view for a moment, 
Um, I mentioned uh, in the uh, headlines to the show that um, we reached a, I called it a milestone, and I'm going to ask you whether it in fact is a, a milestone in a positive way, that we now know that one in 20%, one in five, I think, really, Americans have now been fully vaccinated as of April, I think, 8th, 7th or 8th. Um, is that good progress? Is that where we ought to be right now? And is that heading us? I mean, obviously, the more people that are vaccinated, the better. But what does that tell you about the effort nationwide to get Americans vaccinated? I think it's a critical benchmark and one of the really bright spots, despite the failure of leadership last year, the scaling up of vaccinations this year in the United yeah. States is a welcome relief mm -hmm. and should be good news for everyone. Now, the second part of that reality is that there are disparities if we look nationwide, although you gave us the average, there are states that are performing a little bit better, performing better. a little bit worse. And unfortunately, Georgia is one that has consistently ranked near the bottom. 50 out of 50 states in terms of individuals who are fully vaccinated. 48 out of 50 states in terms of individuals who've gotten at least one dose. And part of that, I think, has to do with some decisions early on by the governor to focus very heavily on older individuals. That Now, that is a good thing, but that's a limited view of vaccination as protection rather than as immunity to try to build population immunity, which, again, stops these links in the chain from reaching the vulnerable individual. And although there's been shifts, the other reality is we just have to continue to work harder. The pace uh, of vaccinations in the multiple millions per day. It's just welcome news. And if we project that out in a couple months, I think we are looking at a much better future, even with the spread of variants, given the effectiveness of vaccines. But it really just depends on us collectively. And that's partly a political actor, but that's also us as communities you know, overcoming hesitancy and then also making sure that the people who've overcome their hesitancy have access, just as Dr. Montgomery Rice said. Dr. Montgomery Rice, before I get to this break, um, tell me if you would, uh, if, if you believe, now that the state, I assume it's welcome news that the governor and Kathleen Toomey have now said anybody 16 years or older is eligible to be vaccinated. Um, I have not looked lately at the supply of vaccine coming into the state mm -hmm. of Georgia. I'm not sure how uh, up to the minute you are on that at this moment, but we do know Johnson & Johnson has just announced They've scaled way back in, because of the production problems they've had in delivery of vaccines to every uh, state. And I'm wondering, are we in a position where we have enough vaccine to accommodate this new uh, threshold of anybody in the state being eligible? And so I don't have the exact numbers of what, are we, what we are getting in, but we were disappointed that we didn't get the influx of Johnson & Johnson that we were hoping because that was we that was what we were going to put on all of our mobile research vans right and go out and be in the parking lots and and give people the one injection and uh, even at morehouse school of medicine i think we have 200 doses that's it and so we are hoping that we will n not continue to have that supply issue but we have been getting a steady flow and there's a process in the state and we do get reports on this of how people get a steady flow of vaccines. And then we got to translate those into vaccinations. And if I went, may I add one thing more thing before your break. I got it. My daughter is a, uh, a first year resident in vascular surgery up at UPenn. And she sends, she was on the night shift last night. And she sends a text in the family text this morning. We are in our fourth surge. We are seeing more patients in, and she's she's in the ICU right now. She's doing in the ICU, and she is voicing concern. And it is real, you all. Right now, if you look at our grading numbers, they have gone down, but now we're slowly starting to see them creep back up. We have got to get more people vaccinated. So that we can, if there's ever going to be any herd immunity, we need it now because the variants or it's changing. The, the virus is changing. And we know that if we can get people where they cannot transmit, where their viral load is low enough 
that they cannot transmit the virus to another person, then we have a greater chance of not seeing the variant. So there is a urgency that we must have, and we must make sure that we have enough supply, which I believe we do have enough supply. Even if we got all of the supply in that we have now into people's arms, we would make a big difference. So we got to move on this. We got to move on this. I've got to get to a break. Uh, when I come, when we come back, a lot more on COVID nineteen in Georgia with our panel. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I'm joined on Political Rewind today by my Friday AJC partner, Patricia Murphy, whose column appears in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays and oversees the uh, 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 AJC political blog uh, every uh, day, which you can get to at AJC.com. By the way, Patricia, thank you for getting it out early in the morning. It sure helps me when I have to get a nine o'clock show live <laughs> on the air. <laughs> You're welcome. We thought people should have a morning jolt instead of an afternoon jolt. <laughs> we're also joined by Professor Joshua Weitz of Georgia Tech, an old friend of the show who we're very happy to have back. And Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, we're very lucky to have the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine uh, with us on the show today. Um, Patricia, um, Dr. Montgomery Rice just talked about um, the surge that we're seeing and about her own daughter and, and um, working in ICU right now. I, I do want to take just one moment to acknowledge the toll that this uh, uh, pandemic has taken on healthcare workers. Kaiser Health News, working in collaboration with, I think, The Guardian, uh, issued a report the other day. More than 3,600 healthcare workers have died in fighting COVID-19. That is a stomach-dropping number. It's wrenching. Um, it's just the it's just terrible. It is such a terrible toll for the people who are um, just putting their own lives on the line to help others in this way. Um, and I have a brother-in-law who is a uh, COVID frontline specialist as well. Um, and uh, it's the physical toll and the emotional toll, I think, is incredible. And we'll be with these professionals really for their entire careers. Um, and that's something that I worry about as well. Um, I also uh, worry since I am uh, since I'm the political person on the panel um, about the next phase that we're going into. Governor Kemp has just essentially lifted nearly all of the restrictions um, for COVID. There are some still left, some minor restrictions left in movie theaters. There will still be some distancing, mostly distancing are the uh, requirements uh, that are still in place. I do think that will be misread as a signal to Georgians that uh, the coast is clear and you can go about your business and go about life as normal. And we all know that that is just not the case, especially until um, people are vaccinated at scale. And so that is a situation that I think the governor felt was important to move forward on because there is so much fatigue among people with the restrictions. Um, but I think it does create a uh, danger zone for us going forward right now. Um, uh, Dr. Montgomery Rice, uh, to go back just a second for the toll this has taken on, on healthcare workers, and then I do want to talk with all of you about the governor's latest uh, effort to uh, open the state up even further. Um, you're training the doctors, you know, you're sending people out. You have a graduating class that will be out in the in the medical workforce, and it must mm -hmm. be particular. And you have your own daughter in, in the field. Mm -hmm. um, what your personal thoughts on what healthcare workers, whether it's your own daughter or the graduates you're sending out, uh, are doing as they confront this virus? So they are our heroes. They have shown us what resilience and grit looks like. They have shown us what it means to take a oath 
to serve, and I am very concerned about their physical and mental well-being. I think all of us felt a level of relief when the vaccine became available. I think all of us were somewhat surprised, though, by the number of frontline workers, not necessarily physicians and nurses, but others who put their lives at risk every day in the hospital to check a patient in, to transport a patient, et cetera, to uh, radiology, et cetera, the hesitancy there. So that added to our, it adds to our stress. And so we are very, um, very much so trying to make sure that we are presenting a united front and that everyone who's in the healthcare system understands that we see them as a valuable asset and that their lives matter and their participation in taking the vaccine matters. Our graduates will be different than they would have been 18 months ago because they had to continue their education in the middle of a pandemic. And we finally allowed them to participate fully because they need to see what it means to be on the front line. And so I think they will be different. But I do believe, as Patricia alluded to, we as a nation have to have resources in place to deal what I think is going to be post-traumatic stress syndrome for these providers, for these persons who have worked, who are working in the health system. And it needs to be ongoing and readily accessible. And then we also have to address how we help them not burn out because we don't want to lose these people who have learned valuable lessons, how to prepare us for the future. And so I am hoping that what we'll be doing with our resources that we're getting with the, for the COVID for pandemic is to think about how we invest in our human capital, not just our financial and economic, but our human capital. Um, thank you for that. Professor Weitz, let's dig into the question that uh, really Patricia just raised. Uh, we now have, as of yesterday, Governor Kemp, uh, certainly uh, we assume with the, with the on the advice of his public health uh, team, has now lifted most restrictions in Georgia. We, we have not here seen the kind of surge, as, you, as, as was mentioned earlier in the show, in Georgia that some states like Michigan have. And yet when I look at your event risk assessment planning tool, there are places in Georgia, Chatt I just happened to land on Chattahoochee, Georgia, a minute ago with my cursor. You say the risk level is 84% for larger gatherings of people down in that part of the state. Um, what are we, how nervous should we be about either the actuality of lifting a lot of these restrictions, or as I think Patricia alluded to earlier, the perception that, that, that the lifting of restrictions uh, places upon all of us? Yeah, I think that distinguishing the practice versus the perception is key. And this isn't the first time that the governor has probably engendered somewhat, some controversy by lifting things a little bit early, if you recall, about a year ago, when things began to open up despite the fact that case lines were not actually going down. I think the challenge right now is that people are tired. In fact, one of the things that has been the most challenging is to try to balance mandates versus messaging, trying to reach the same outcome in a way that's going to be sustainable. The other problem moving forward is that I think we still need to be smarter with respect to what are the most effective ways to change behavior to minimize the risk of transmission and be honest about those. And one of the issues that I think that we've never fully confronted in the state, really nationwide, is the fact that our public health measures are linked to our socioeconomic relief plans. So, for example, in the past year plus, I mean, I've been working on COVID since January 2020, I have not had a, uh, a meal inside a restaurant because in order to eat the food, I have to take off my mask and I'm with other people for an extended period of time. That is a high-risk environment. The same applies to going into a place of worship. And we've attended remote yeah. services with my synagogue. And I know many other people in churches, communities have had to make those same difficult choices. 
Right? So there are many sort of things we would like to do, but extended period of time indoors without masks, with poor ventilation, those elements together lead to high risk of transmission. And so my worry with respect to this newest order vis-a-vis Governor Kemp is that people will interpret this in a way to say, well, I guess things are getting better. It's okay. Whereas there may be other ways to still focus in on trying to get access to those sort of important community events, but try to do them in a safer way. My biggest worry is that until we get, you know, maybe it's two or threefold where we are now vis-a-vis vaccinations, we can't just sort of switch gears automatically, turn one switch on and turn the other off. These things are going to have to go hand in hand. And if I were to remind folks or try to prioritize their choices, reduce the time you spend indoors with others not in your family group, and especially in crowded, non-poorly ventilated environments. And unfortunately, restaurants are one of those. And I wish we were giving more relief to restaurant workers or opening up sidewalk cafes, especially in Georgia. There's all sorts of different ways to reclaim public spaces to just keep risk lower. So that's, that's where I think things stand right now. Um, so, Dr. Montgomery Rice, um, continue. You're fully vaccinated or not? We wear masks. We continue to socially distance six feet. By the way, would you mind dealing with a very a big pet peeve of mine that I've been men- meaning to mention on the show? Would you please, as the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine, a very prestigious position, would you please tell folks out there that those of you who are wearing your masks? covering your mouth but not your noses, don't get it. Because I see that all the time, and I, I don't stop people because that's not my job. But please tell people to cover their darn noses, too. <laughs> hey, there, there is clearly a proper way to wear a mask, and, and, and I actually probably have been accused of saying to people, um, would you please pull your mask up over your nose? Um, and Thank you. Um, I, I do have concerns about... <clears throat> us opening up too fast. And again, this is happening. So what do we do in the face of this happening? We have to add to it. And so my addition to this would be, let's take mobile research, our mobile vans with vaccines on them and meet people where they are. So at all of the mass gatherings that people want to have, we can set up pop-up vaccination sites, you all. And even if you got 25% of people to get vaccinated that day, that would at least be a start. And so I am hopeful that we will get more creative in meeting people where they are and getting people vaccinated. Because it is going to be very hard even if we start to see the surge back again in Georgia, they say, oh, okay, now you all, we're going to shut down. So what we got to do, you all, is to meet people where they are and get them vaccinated while still encouraging people to use common sense, wearing their masks properly, continuing to watch their distance, only congregating with people who have been fully vaccinated outside of your normal bubble and keeping those uh, sanitation, all of those measures in place. So I'm saying let's vaccinate people wherever they are, wherever someone is willing to stick out their arm, I am willing to vaccinate them. I'll carry them in my bag with me and go place to place if that's what it takes. We'll give you some dried ice. We'll have to give you dried ice. (laughs) Patricia. So, Dr. Montgomery Rice, um, my question also as a mom with young kids, what do you Mm -hmm. think is the outlook for children? Because the vaccinations, of course, for adults are so important, but I don't... I don't know that anything is on the horizon in the near term for children. So schools will still uh, have young children in them. Mass gatherings will have young children in them. Uh, What do you think is the outlook and your recommendation for that? Let me jump in real quick because, Patricia, you have really set us up for a great conversation. But let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll talk about that when we come back on Political Rewind. Uh, Before we uh, uh, took the break, uh, Patricia Murphy had just asked Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, president of Morehouse School of Medicine, about schools and children and uh, having in-person 
classes again and what we ought to be thinking about in terms of that. Um, Dr. Montgomery Rice and also Joshua Weitz, you should weigh in on this as well. So here's the good news, <clears throat> that um, children can uh, usually uh, get through anything. They, are, they have great, great immune system, but they do get COVID-19 and they have mild symptoms. And when the CDC reported uh, the information, it became somewhat confusing about whether or not uh, we, should, we could go back to classes and et cetera. But that was based on the data of <clears throat> when they looked at and tracked the students, where the students could have potentially gotten infected, it didn't appear to be coming from the classroom setting, et cetera. And so here's the bottom line, is that we believe that we should have the preventive health measures in place. But we do also believe that kids can go back to school, particularly now you are if the, most of the teachers are vaccinated and the staff are vaccinated. Now, can children get vaccines? I think Pfizer's the only one that's been somewhat approved right now for 16 years and older, but every one of them have a trial going on right now. So we have a trial going on in uh, I think it's two through six to age, two through 16 at Morehouse School of Medicine with one of the vaccines, I don't remember which one. So every one of them have a trial going on. But, so by the end of summer, we will have good data with every one of the vaccines that are approved currently under an EUA in the United States to know what the, how effective it is against children, for children. And it is my hope that that data will support what I believe is there, that children should be vaccinated. So just like all the other vaccinations that we pull up that little card that just gets wrinkly in our bag as we were taking our kids every year to register them for school, okay, we will have on there COVID-19 vaccines and that your child has been vaccinated. And I think that is how we're going to get kids back to school safely. And you all, we got to balance. There have been so many kids who are, who are behind now, even further behind in this vaccine. And I think that there's a balance that we have to get to in this country. So as a parent, Patricia, I hope that you will, as soon as the data comes out, we'll get your child vaccinated and, and that you will participate with advocating for others. Of course. Professor White's weigh in on this. Well, I think I'm largely going to agree. I think that the <laughs> optimism there with respect to vaccine trials moving into younger ages, and I think we should probably expect a 12 to 16-year-old group as being the next batch, and we already have 16 mm -hmm. plus, and then and moving into younger ages. And I think that already begins to talk about children up to age 17, but even young adults in colleges and universities, that's another priority area to try to get them who are already eligible to get high levels of vaccination so that higher education can open back up safely. And one of the another reasons that we should think about vaccination for both young adults and children as being a priority is because, yes, they can become infected. Yes, they typically have mild symptoms, but they can occasionally transmit onwards. And that just gets another chance if we right. don't vaccinate for this to persist, for more variants to emerge, and so on and so forth. So I think that all of these points uh, to optimism with respect to trials going on that will hopefully extend the age range of individuals, but that presently, because that's not an option, insofar as people are in schools, and, and my children are in elementary school, they've gone back, they were delighted to go back. I mean, that was a real thrill. <laughs> but we told them, you are wearing your mask, and this school has been terrific. Uh, every day, and the school has been terrific at also providing more and more outdoor options for them uh, in terms of both eating and recess options. And I think we're going to have to try to find more ways to kind of keep in mind that balance between large unmatched indoor gatherings as being that primary risk factor for spread and adjust accordingly, even as we wait for this vaccine access point to extend to younger ages. Professor Weitz, while the ball is in your court, let me ask you another question that I know a lot of people are thinking about. Um, many of us are now fully vaccinated. We, the, the vaccines are so new uh, that we're still trying to understand COVID, or you and your cohort uh, are. Um, what do we know about how long we're protected? We really don't know how long this protection against COVID is going to last once we're vaccinated, do we? So yes, at some level, but let's not uh, conflate this notion of some things that are unknowable because we've just given the first vaccines a few months ago. So 
Yes, technically speaking, we can't know that they're affected beyond however many months it's been since that first vaccine was delivered. But I think we should, on the other hand, see some optimism, first of all, based on the rare levels of reinfection uh, from even natural infections and evidence of uh, from ongoing trials suggests we're talking six plus months, I think, at least. Mm -hmm. I'm more optimistic that it'll be on the year schedule. On the other hand, with variants, we have to be monitoring and these companies are already because they have the platforms to rapidly generate and produce vaccines against variants. We'll have to just continue to monitor. And that's the part that we can't, I can't, and I don't think anyone can give you an answer right now uh, with respect to the potential for escape mutants. But right now, the vaccines are effective, even if there's some reduction in efficacy against variants. And so we should use them because it's much better to reach population immunity through vaccination than through more and more infections. And we already have seen what has happened with hundreds of thousands of fatalities. So that remains the safe and ethical way to move forward. Uh, but two, two items about that, uh, uh, Dr. Montgomery Rice. One is uh, we, we were wondering if, we are, if this is going to become like a flu shot. It's an annual uh, shot and a formula changes depending on variants. That's one uh, scenario that some public health people believe to be true. But the other is simply that this underscores why all the precautions need to remain in place, even if we're vaccinated. I agree uh, totally. I do believe that we are going to require boosters. This just as, as I look at the data. I also want to make a point. Data is now coming out that people who were infected with COVID and now they're getting the vaccination, those long haulers, some of their symptoms appear to be getting a lot better. So we're really excited about that. So yes, I believe that we will require boosters. I believe it's gonna probably be something similar to the, vac uh, to the flu. And look at the data from flu, you all, it's significantly down. It is significantly down because people wore masks. People wear masks, people watching their distance, people are not spreading. So those preventive health measures are still very important. Um, Dr. Montgomery Rice, uh, thank you for those comments. And as we come to the end of the show, thank you so very much for being part of our conversation uh, today and for giving us an insight, not only about the virus, but the work you're doing at Morehouse School of Medicine. Joshua White, it's been too long. We want you to come back more often and talk with us about uh, the virus when you have opportunities to do that. And Patricia Murphy, thank you for today. Remember, everybody, uh, we'll have Patricia's Sunday column posted online later this morning. Thank you all for being uh, with us. We're out of time for today's show. Thank you, Sam Burmis-Dawes, for your work. Engineer Jesse Neiswanger, Amelia Brock, uh, appreciate everything you do to make this show a success. I'm Bill Nygut. See you on Monday. Until then, take care, stay healthy. You heard it from the experts. Wear your mask above the nose. And yes, if you can get a vaccine, go do it as soon as possible. See y'all.